And please take a copy of uh, scriptures and turn uh, once again to Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy chapter 1, we have a lengthier uh, passage before us today from verses 19 through the end of the chapter, verse uh, 46. Uh, Israel is poised on the edge of the promised land, and Moses uh, speaks to this generation, reminding them that Israel has been in this position before, not on the plains of Moab, but at Kadesh Barnea. But when the time came for them to enter into the land that the Lord was giving to them, they they rebelled. And Moses tells, recounts this story to the second generation that they would desire, that they would want the right thing. And the New Testament tells us that's precisely how we as Christians should also understand this story and its significance for the Christian life. These things were written down as an example for us that we would not desire evil, but want the right thing. So with that in mind, let's turn our attention to the reading of God's word, beginning in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 19. And let's hear the Lord has to say to the church. Then we set out from Horeb and went through all that great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, as the Lord our God commanded us. And we came to Kadesh Barnea. And I said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Then all of you came near me and said, Let us send men before us that they may explore the land for us and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up and the cities into which we shall come. The thing seemed good to me and I took twelve men from you, one man from each tribe, and they turned and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eshcol and spied it out. And they took in their hands some of the fruit of the land and brought it down to us And brought us word again and said, it is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Yet you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying, The people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. Then I said to you, Do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that went until you came to this place. 
Yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God, who went before you in the way to seek you out a place to pitch your tents, and fire by night and in the cloud by day, to show you by what way you should go. And the Lord heard your words and was angered, and he swore, not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it, and to him and to his children I will give the land on which he has trodden, because he has wholly followed the Lord. Even with me, the Lord was angry on your account and said, You also shall not go in there. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. And as for your little ones, who you said would become a prey, and your children, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there. And to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. Then you answered me, We have sinned against the Lord. We ourselves will go up and fight, just as the Lord our God commanded us. And every one of you fastened on his weapons of war and thought it easy to go up into the hill country And the Lord said to me, say to them, do not go up or fight, for I am not in your midst, lest you be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you, and you would not listen. But you rebelled against the command of the Lord, and presumptuously went up into the hill country. Then the Amorites, who lived in that hill country, came out against you, And chased you as bees do, and beat you down in seer as far as Hormah. And you returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord did not listen to your voice or give ear to you. So you remained at Kadesh many days, the days that you remained there. Chutu, imagine a voice that speaks in utter darkness. And when it speaks, everything begins to shine with light. A brilliant light blankets a new landscape, a brand new world. And you see a world filled with good things, a lush forest stretching out before your eyes. And, and wherever you look, the world is, this new world is teeming with life. You look up and birds fill the expanse and animals roam the earth and sea creatures swim about in the water. It is a good land, a land of plenty. You see a river flowing through this land and it makes its way through this rich forest and eventually divides into four separate headwaters that flow into land where gold and bdellium and onyx are found. I you to imagine this, that you stand in this good and spacious land and recognize that you are in paradise. And best of all, the best thing about it is that you are not alone. 
The creator and king of it all is there with you. He, he is there to, to dwell with you, to have fellowship with you. He has cre- created you in his own image as one of his children to live in his presence, bearing his image in this good world that he has made. So this one who has existed from all eternity in perfect fullness and life and joy is is there in the garden with you. He's there to dwell with you. He's there to walk with you in the coolness of the day. And in his presence, there is fullness of joy. And at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. But you rebelled. He is your life. But you chose death. He set before you the path of life. But you listened to the the slithering suggestions of another. You rejected life itself. And surprise, surprise, death came. Catastrophe. I think it's important to imagine this because it, it is the story that repeats itself again and again and again. This outrageous act with life and death set before us, desiring what is evil and choosing death. Instead of wanting the right thing and receiving life as a gift. This outrageous act occurs every time we prefer something to God. So you see, this isn't just a story that we find at the beginning of our Bibles in the book of Genesis. It is a story that is repeated, including in the story recorded in our passage today. There are variations of the theme, to be sure, but history repeats itself. But my friends, the good news, the good news is that this story of rebellion and judgment does not have to be your story. Paul says to the church in Corinth, Christians like us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, that this story of Israel's rebellion is recorded to be an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Why did all of this happen? And why is it in our Bibles? Did you know that it happened for you? Did you know that it was recorded for our sake? That you might want the right thing. That I would not desire the wrong thing. These things were written down so that we would choose life. There's lots going on in this lengthy passage that we've already read, but it does break down into two basic parts. First, God's gift and the people's refusal in verses 19 through 33. And the second part is God's judgment and the people's presumption in verses 34 through 46. So let's begin with the first part, looking at God's gift and the people's refusal in verses 19 through 33. It's really helpful to have the background in mind as we consider this story. Remember hundreds of years before this, 
God, God made a covenant with Abraham and gave Abraham a number of promises. Among those promises were a people and a place. A people as numerous as the stars of the heaven and a place for them to dwell. And Abraham and his descendants got a taste of life in that land. But you remember that eventually they had to make their way down to Egypt and they ended up enslaved. 400 years of slavery. And the people multiplied there, but life in Egypt was one of bondage. It was one of constant toil. They were wheels in the cog of Egypt. And life was nothing but endless labor, building uh, whatever Pharaoh willed as he sought to make a name for himself. But God heard the cries of his people and in time, he raised up a deliverer in Moses and he, he redeemed them out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. And while doing so, conquered the greatest superpower of the world at that time with many signs and wonders. And then he led them through the Red Sea and to Mount Sinai, or Horeb as it's called in the book of Deuteronomy. And there the Lord made other covenant promises to the people of Israel. He, he gave his law to Israel as his son, training Israel as his son in the way that they should go. And then he led them through the desert, which Moses calls in verse 19 in Deuteronomy chapter 1, that great and terrifying wilderness that they saw. They saw the barrenness and the emptiness and the terror of life in the wilderness. And then he led that generation to the, the cusp of the land that he was giving to them. That's the language found again and again in our passage. See it in verse 20. This is the land that the Lord was giving them. Keeping the promise to give his plentiful people a place where they would dwell in his midst. And in contrast to that great and terrifying wilderness... They saw that it was a good land that God was giving to them. A land flowing with, with milk and honey. And so the people saw the difference. We need, to, we need to recognize that emphasis upon sight. They saw the difference between the misery of life in Egypt and uh, the terror of life in the barren wilderness in contrast to the good and spacious land that God was setting before them and giving to them. They saw it. But then they came to this critical moment. God had brought them through all of this and they're standing on the edge of the promised land at Kadesh Barnea and the Lord said, it's time to go up. It's time to go in. I am giving you the land. I will, I will fight for you. Go and take it. What did they do? They rebelled. They refused. They turned away. God set before them a good land, a place of rest, a place of peace, a place of plenty, a place where he would dwell in their midst with them. But when uh, they saw the difficulties before them, when they saw the obstacles laying before them in terms of going in and inheriting what God was giving to them, they turned away. They became faint-hearted, we might say. 
You know, faith, faith, what does it do? Faith, faith takes God at his word, and one of the ways that faith is expressed is by obeying God's commands. We talk about hope a lot as Christians. What is hope? Hope is the assurance of things unseen. Hope is, hope is the assured confidence of obtaining something even if it be through difficulty. And in this moment, Israel lacked faith. They did not take God at his word. They did not obey his command. And instead of being hopeful, they despaired. They lost all hope of obtaining the very thing God promised to give to them. And so they turned aside. When you think about it, when Israel stood before the promised land and murmured and grumbled, they were like, they were like a hungry man standing in front of a fridge packed full of the most delicious food. And he slams the door shut and says, I simply cannot be bothered with that. How long it would take me to prepare that? Think about the sluggard, the, the figure in the book of Proverbs that's described in a number of ways. Remember, one of the descriptions of the sluggard is he refuses to get up and go out of his house because he says, There's a lion outside. There's a lion outside. And Israel is just like that sluggard in the book of Proverbs with a list of excuses saying, If we go in there, we will be devoured. Another image of the sluggard in the book of, of Proverbs is this, this feast is set before him. This rich banquet of delicious food prepared and set before him. But he simply cannot bring himself after grabbing hold of the food to bring it back to his mouth that he might be fed. And so he starves. See, when we think about those images, as descriptions of Israel here, we understand something of how outrageous this is. God said... I am giving this land to you. I will be with you. I will go before you. I will fight for you. So go. And the people's response in a nutshell is, God, you must hate us. You you brought us out here to die. But think about it. In terms of our own lives, dear friends, our, our rebellion is even worse than that. When we turn away from the one who who gave his very life that we might live. And he invites us to taste and see that he is good. That in his presence there is fullness of joy. And at his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And yet when Jesus says to us, trust and follow me, we are tempted to turn away. When Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest and take my yoke upon you, sometimes we are tempted to say, that yoke of obedience that you call us to is just too much to bear. Or when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, we have a list of excuses of why it will feel like death to give those things up to follow Jesus. So I can't possibly do that. We're attempted We're tempted to accuse God of the very thing Israel accuses God of here in Deuteronomy 1. God, you must hate us. Just like Israel said in verse 27. Because lying behind that 
is the reality that we, we don't really want God. We don't really desire him. We want something else more than him. And so we turn to other things that we think will make us happy with, without all of the trouble of trusting and obeying God. Instead, we trust in ourselves and we, we turn away from life with God, who is our life, and we turn to lesser things. As this story is recorded in the book of Numbers, Numbers 14, that account tells us that there were people in Israel who were, in fact, saying, we were better off in Egypt. Let's find some new leaders and let's get back there. But it's incredible. But like the Israelites who, who wanted to send spies to search out the land in verses 22 through 25 and, and doubt God's goodness because we refuse to take him at his word, right? We don't, we don't want to walk by faith. We, we want to send out our own spies to test everything before we obey anything at all. And so we insist on evaluating everything on our own terms. We want to we see and evaluate on our terms and not take God at his word. And that leads us to do the very thing I think Israel did here in Deuteronomy 1 as it's retold by Moses. And that is to exaggerate our problems and underestimate God's provision. That's what Israel does here. They exaggerate their problems and they underestimate God's provision. And man, that, that's something I do all of the time. But you? Do you ever find yourself exaggerating your problems and underestimating God's provision? Listen to what they said. The people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. Right? They complain about their giant problems, these these, these obstacles before them, but they don't say anything about how God had fought for them in Egypt and had overcome the greatest superpower of the world at that time. And so, so how about you? Are you exaggerating your problems and underestimating God's provision for you in Christ? Where, ask yourself today, where, where am I tempted to do that, because that is probably where you are most tempted to rebel against the Lord. Perhaps it's in your marriage. Perhaps it's something to do with children or with your health. Or perhaps it has to do with not being married or not having children or not having good health or, or whatever it is. The point is not that we don't have real challenge, challenges, brothers and sisters. The point is that we have been given an even greater provision in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, there was work Israel had to do in order to enter into the promised land. They had to strive to enter into that rest that God held out to them. God was giving it to them according to promise, but they had to go and take possession of it. But Israel turned away and thought going back to Egypt was the better of the two choices. See, they avoided God's command and thought that they could find satisfaction and comfort somewhere else. 
And so they refused. They refused life and fellowship with God, and they rebelled. Now this is actually, as we think about what Israel does here, this is actually what the Christian tradition has historically called the sin of sloth. Some of you know that I'm, I'm working on this right now, and one of the main passages cited in church history as it's reflected upon the sin of Acadia, or the sin of sloth as we call it, is Deuteronomy chapter 1. Now when we hear the word sloth, we think of mere laziness, don't we? Sloth isn't laziness. Sloth, as the Christian tradition has thought about it, is when, 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 uh, when we see the good that God has for his people and, and what it will require of us to obtain and receive that good and respond appropriately to it, we respond with, to it with sadness and we turn away from it. And then we respond either in terms of just inactivity, laziness as a symptom of sloth, or we, or we turn to some other form of activity that seeks satisfaction and fulfillment and happiness somewhere else. Let's go back to Egypt. And it always ends in disaster. It always ends in frustration and disappointment. You know, I was, uh, when I was in high school, um, I, uh, I would run with uh, some buddies of mine and a youth pastor, youth pastor, uh, that would, he would run with us uh, six days a week. He and I would run Monday through Saturday. We'd meet at 6 a.m. every day for about an hour, sometimes more, and, and run together. It was one of the most influential things in my life. That's a story for another day. But one of the routes that uh, we would, would take that was uh, particularly difficult, it was, a, it was an eight-mile run, and about two-thirds of the way into the run, you, you hit just this horrible hill. Uh, it was about a mile long of climbing, and it was a steep incline, maybe 80% of the time. And right when you're going up this hill and you reach the point, or at least where I felt like I was going to die, <laughs> um, there, was a, there was a turnoff onto another road. Uh, the road is called Fintown Road. Some of you might know where that is. If you do, you can come talk to me later. But um, one day we're coming up the hill, and I could tell that one of my, my friends was especially struggling that day. And uh, we got to that crossroad, that turnoff, and with his head down, he, he never looked up. He was not leaving it open to discussion. He just said, I'm going to take Fintown Road. <laughs> And he turned off and he was gone. Now, when you turn onto Fintown Road, the climb is over. It's downhill from there. And the eight-mile run turns into a six-mile run. Now, if, if you've ever been a runner, you know that, yeah, sometimes you may face the temptation to take shortcuts like that. But you know there's a reward for you if you complete a really challenging run, right? There's something rewarding in and of itself of reaching the destination and finishing uh, the, the race or the course. Well, my friend missed out on that that day. He, he turned aside. And to this day, it's a joke among us that when somebody takes the easy way out and uh, misses out on the reward uh, awaiting on the other side of difficulty, we, we call that taking Fintown Road. <laughs> That's what Israel did. Israel took Fintown Road. 
The good land was set before them. They could see it. The promised reward of life with God in the land was right there. They could could taste it. But when they saw the difficulties in front of them, they turned away. They refused to listen and live. And this story, brothers and sisters, is an example for us. Don't make the same mistake. Don't turn away from the one who is your life. That brings us to the second part of this passage. God's judgment and the people's presumption. Verses 34 through 46. I guess I should probably say, I think we all know this, but in our society few topics today are less popular than talk of God's judgment. You talk about the anger of God and people get angry. But before we look at God's judgment in this story, I I want you to think about where denying divine judgment leaves us. Where where does no judgment leave us? It leaves us in a world without meaning. That's that's where it leaves us, in the emptiness left by a lack of serious consideration of divine judgment comes uh, an overwhelming sense of the utter meaninglessness of everything. what What I'm saying is that if you reject the reality of divine judgment, you are inevitably left living in a world where moral and immoral action is ultimately indistinguishable. Now why would that be? Because judgment gives meaning to life. Judgment gives meaning to life. Without judgment there really is nothing left to distinguish between the most beautiful act of love and the most brutal act of violence that you could ever imagine. Without judgment Nothing ultimately separates those two things. Without judgment, nothing matters in the end. Everything from rape and murder to caring for the poor and feeding the hungry is in the end indistinguishable. Without judgment, everything fades to gray. But the second part of this story brings all of the color back into our dreary gray world with its insistence on the reality of right and wrong, the reality of judgment, because some things really are worth it. Our passage insists that some things really do matter. Some things really are precious and valuable and they must not be violated. The most precious thing of all, the greatest treasure of all, God. God is, God is the one, think of him, the one who has existed from, from all eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in perfect fullness and joy and life. Consider him. Consider his surpassing Worth, the one who created all things and sustains all things, holds all things together, who saved a people out of slavery, who entered into covenant with them, who delivered them 
through the Red Sea, who provided for them in that vast, terrifying wilderness, and then led them to the brink of every blessing he had promised. And they said, no, you hate us. You must want us to die. Friends, do you see how personal this is? It's not just a refusal of a good and pleasant land. It is a refusal of God himself. It is a turning away from him who is your life. As we go through the book of Deuteronomy together, we're going to see that Deuteronomy repeatedly reminds us that sin is inherently and always personal. It is always relational. The the Holy Spirit who, who can be grieved. The Son who was pierced for our transgressions. Our loving Father. It is Him who we offend. I see our, our words, they can't even begin to express His, His goodness and His kindness and His love and generosity and worth. And our sin is always, always against Him. Every sin we commit is personal. It, it is always committed against Him. And, and unless we see that whenever we sin, we are preferring something more to the one who is our life, then we simply will never understand how right God is to judge sin. See, friends, sin is not simply a bad choice we make that inevitably leads to bad consequences. It's, uh, it's adultery. That's one of the ways that the prophets speak about the sins of, of God's people. It is, it is adultery, marital infidelity. Because the one who is our maker and our redeemer is our husband. Who in Christ Jesus has united us to himself in a covenantal bond. And then we go and sleep around. I'm not, trying, I'm not trying to be crass here, but, but we need to feel the outrage of it that the prophets wanted us to understand. I mean, doesn't, doesn't it make you mad when something that is good and pure and beautiful is sullied? When it's violated? When something good is, is vandalized? So is it any wonder when, when God saw his people grumbling and accusing him of hating him, they hating them, that he became angry with them. As we, we see in verse 34, is, is it any wonder that God turns the sweet promise, uh, the sweet promised land of honey into a bee sting? That is the poetic justice that we see here in this story. The Lord said, I'm bringing you into a land of milk and honey, but they refused to First, trust the Lord and go in with, by his, his leading. And then they say, look, we, we blew it. We're going to do this on our own now. They strap on their swords and out come the bees, the Amorites, who chase them and beat them down. They don't taste the sweetness of the land. Instead, they get stung. See, friends, Israel would not listen and live. They chose death by turning from the one who was their life. And, and so in verse 35, God, God swears in his wrath 
Not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it, and to him and to his children I will give the land on which he has trodden, because he has wholly followed the Lord. If you think about this, we need to recognize God's, God's anger here is, is a sobering reality. But what is even more striking is how God continues to promise salvation even in the midst of judgment. One generation of Israelites will fall in the wilderness, but another generation is raised up to enter into the land. The, the promise of a continuing seed abides. And as the Lord says in verse 39, As for your little ones, who you said would become prey, and your children who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there, and to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. See, death and judgment are not the end of the story. The story of the promised seed continues. And so we're told that Joshua will succeed Moses in verse 38, which is the first reference to Joshua in the book of Deuteronomy, and it's no incident that this is the first time, uh, it's no accident that this is the first time Joshua's name is mentioned. And it's also no accident that the Greek form of the name of Joshua is Jesus. Now, the name Joshua means the Lord is salvation. Can I ask, okay, where, where is all of this going? Where is this story ultimately headed? Here is this one named Joshua whose name means the Lord is salvation. And we're told he will lead the people into the land and he will cause his people to inherit it. See, the one whose name, therefore, is the Lord is salvation will bring about the fulfillment of all of the promises of God here. You see, it's a picture. It's a picture of, of our Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, who was willing to not only go up and fight when his father sent him, he was willing to lay down his life on a cross where he was cursed in order to defeat all of his and our Enemies. You see, our Joshua fights for us and causes us to inherit what is promised. That's where this story is ultimately leading us, brothers and sisters. Praise God. But there is, there is a final word of warning that we need to give attention to as we come to the end of this passage. And the warning is this, that we, we need to beware False repentance. We need to beware of false repentance. This is the warning that comes at the end of this story. In verse 41, the Israelites cry out, We've sinned against the Lord. We ourselves, now we'll, we'll go up and fight, just as the Lord, our God, commanded us. And Moses says, So every one of you fastened on weapons of war and thought it an easy thing to go up into the hill country. Moses says the Lord refused to hear his people's confession. 
because the people refused to trust in the Lord and rely on him alone. So you see how this story unfolds? They, they, paid, they paid lip service to God. They said something that was true, that is even difficult to say. We sinned. We sinned against the Lord. We, we were wrong. We messed up. But then they said, we're going to take care of it. We're going to make this right. We're going to strap on our swords. We're going to go up there. We're going to muster our strength. And we're we're going to fix things. We should have done it right the first time. But Lord, we're going to make all of this okay. We need to remember that repentance, brothers and sisters, repentance means turning away from self, turning away from sin, and relying entirely upon God. But it is, it is much easier to say, I messed up, I blew it, I did wrong, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to grit my teeth, I'll, I'll try a little harder, I'll do a little better. If you just, just let me read the right book or talk to the right person or whatever you rely upon and I'll set things straight, but you don't turn to Christ. You don't see how bad your sin really is and how good your Savior really is. And so you strap on whatever sword it is that you prefer and you rely on self and it gets you killed. Beaten down. And the story is here for us to say, don't let that happen to you. It doesn't have to happen to you. That's Paul's point in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. These things were written down as an example for us so that we would not desire evil as they did. And then he goes on to say, God will provide for you. He will give you what you need, but not through self-reliance. It's not through finding the resources, digging deep within yourself, gritting your teeth, and getting it done. I can't think of any way, better way to wrap up this lesson than to think of Martin Luther's words, in a mighty fortress is our God. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Just ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same. And he, he must win the battle. So let's put our trust and our hope not in ourselves Not in lesser things, but in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our life. Please pray with me. Lord, we pray that you would teach us the the lesson that we are meant to learn from the example of Israel here. That we would desire the right things and not desire what is evil. And that we would not put our trust in ourselves, but put our trust in our Joshua the Lord Jesus, who is our salvation. And we pray this in his mighty name. Amen.